Today is May 19th, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestakom Aki or Dekots Nagotine Siku. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. My Dene lineage roots me in the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My name, Dekots Nagotine Siku, uh, is uh, what I'm trying to say is Red Thunder Woman. <laughs> My people wore rabbit skin. So it's been referred to the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Kincho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis says Michelle Elliott, an English name that has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Agnum Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Agnum Post status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2SLGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of land displacement, colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share my journey as I walk down the red road. <clears throat> As a Dene woman who has attempted to run and join harmful parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allows incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue reports to advocate for and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for this so-called country named Canada. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping harm as a citizen and see your role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Pride Month should never just be one month, as it is important to understand the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest or colonizer, however you frame that, and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important land acknowledgements have meaning. <clears throat> I encourage all folks to introduce themselves with an acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee or other land displacement. So we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you will not pronounce your local Indigenous nations names, say your pronouns, say your story of origin, and won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book, Unreconciled, explains it perfectly, as do many other Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but it would be a part of a treaty partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation, and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my red road journey on their land. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. 
My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe. And you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So I'm super happy to have returning guests come back. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself again, Dr.? Thanks so much, Michelle. Uh, my name is Ewan Thompson. I, I use he and him pronouns, and I'm here in Mokinstis, Calgary, Treaty 7 land. Uh, I, I have not experienced displacement. I'm from Scottish ancestry, kind of across the board, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, I have not experienced, you know, the colonial harms uh, that so many people in, in, in this region of our country have, um, and, and across North America, across Turtle Island. We've uh, I've got a lot of work to do, I think, in catching up with um, what is in, in a lot of ways a zero-sum game of, of colonial harms and colonial benefits, and I think I fall on the latter side of that pretty clearly uh, to this day. Um, so I, I see my role really as treaty partner um, to, to try and even out the. We're never gonna we're never gonna come back. I don't think from from some of the harms that have been done, but we can certainly look forward and and use uh, an indigenous lens to to try and uh, fix things for the future people who are coming along and, and the people that are coming up right now. Um, so uh, with that, I, I really focus a lot on drug policy. Um, you and I have, I think, come a long way in the last, you know, couple of years since we've got to know each other, um, just understanding the full context of, of the drug poisoning crisis. Um, not, not that we're there yet, I wouldn't say at all, but, uh, um, you know, our recent piece that we put out together with, with, with Terrell and with Will um, really, really helped shine some light in some uh, forgotten corners of of the drug poisoning crisis that I think really need a lot more emphasis. So thanks so much for having me on today. And uh, and, and for all your listeners, um, anybody who is able to give, please please do support Michelle. The, the work that she does um, has, has brought me a long way and, and I think is probably doing the same for many people out there. So, so thanks for having me. Those are really kind words. I appreciate that. Um, well, geez, where do we start? So I guess the last time you came was in September. And unfortunately, there's been hundreds of deaths since. Um, this piece that we just co-authored, I really wanted you to talk about that as well. Um, because I, I think when I say we are dying of genocide because of bad imposed poverty, bad policies imposed, like all of uh, the legislation that's stacked against us for some reason people just can't understand it and you know I've had you back because one you've shown yourself to be a good ally but two that bigger picture that you you see it like why why can't other people see it um and I aptly called the paper uh clearing the planes 2.0 and um it, that's not tongue-in-cheek it's very hard because I know it and I I think you see this daily and so do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about why you're so passionate about it and then maybe a bit about the paper. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, when we, when we do our advocacy work, you know, we you look at mom, stop the harm. Uh, you look at a lot of the advocates, uh, you know, I, I run an organization called each and every, it's a business coalition. Um, these, these are largely settler dominated organizations. And, and a lot of the time when we stand shoulder to shoulder with others, um, in these fights, we are surrounded by other settlers. And something that I think all of us recognized um, a while back was, was the need for, um, for us to reposition ourselves within this crisis, knowing the statistics. We've all seen the statistics now within the advocacy world of Indigenous people, First Nations people uh, is the statistic in Alberta, um, are at seven times higher risk than non-First Nations people of opioid poisoning death. Um, when you start to dig through these sorts of statistics, um, you start to understand the, the degree to which uh, these are not entirely settler problems. In fact, they're not even proportionately settler problems. These are vastly disproportionately Indigenous problems um, and, and crises. And, and I think there's a point at which we have to stop calling them crises um, because they start to look intentional. Uh, we have a long history in this country of, of uh, using different mechanisms 
like family separation uh, through child services or indigenous uh, or Indian residential schools or uh, the 60 scoop, so on, um, of separating indigenous families and, and creating downstream harms that, that may not be apparent right away, but, but they certainly show up in the statistics later. And right now we've, we've got the benefit of having some of those statistics in hand within the context of the drug poisoning crisis, the overdose crisis, and, uh, and, and it's time to act on behalf of those statistics because not everybody's gonna understand right away when they hear it, but, um, but those people who do, I think uh, have responsibility to make sure that they are advocating in a way that, that respects the dynamic that's at play here, that um, a lot of the losses that we're suffering among settler communities are, um, are really just collateral damage um, as a result of these mechanisms, these uh, levers that are being pulled by all levels of government in order to continually displace and disrupt Indigenous communities in our towns, our cities, and, and even our rural regions. Yeah, and it's national. This is a national issue. And when I say these things, it is a national problem. Um, so, you know, here you have Indian residential schools um, upsetting the, the entire culture, language, uh, it's absolute cultural genocide. The trauma that came from that is then continuing through the child apprehension system. So, you know, we say the 60s scoop because it originated in the 60s when they were transitioning from the Indian residential school policy yeah. to the child apprehension policy. And if it wasn't for Indian um, residential schools, the government wouldn't have had to go, geez, you know, we know this is really inhumane. We got to change something here and, mm -hmm. and start making a transition from the 60s to the 90s when they finally started to close some of the schools. So, um, you know, for folks who see the people that are on the streets, you know, they, they have a real propaganda machine from the time that they're born to say uh, natives are, are worse, natives are this, natives are this, natives are this. And it, we feel it, you know, I grew up basically being told I was inferior my entire life. And mm -hmm. ironically, for folks who are willing to go down the propaganda machine and unpack it and unlearn it, the irony is our people are surviving genocide that's been imposed by settlers. And it continues, starting with the Indian Act, starting with the uh, past system, you know, clearing the plains that your paper was intentionally named clearing the plains 2.0, because for folks who have read the book clearing the plains, it was a violent colonial systemic um, land theft of pushing us onto these itty bitty reserves in some places we've never even been. And, and then forcing taking all the children putting them in schools separating families intentionally by thousands of, of kilometers at times in order for those children to not be able to run back home and for the parents to not see those children to completely decimate and destroy a culture and a language. Mm -hmm. And the parents that were left behind were broken that the children were taken because we actually value our children as opposed to the settler community that's like, whatever, throw them in, in, in daycares and in schools and, you know, the time I got here's a an iPad, blah, 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 just like really dismissive. Children should be seen, not heard. I was told that growing up, you know, like these are things that are awful. And whereas with Indigenous people, we we value and cherish our children. We see that we were lucky enough to um, be chosen by them and to raise them until they're ready to be adults themselves. Um, so it, it's a completely different mindset. And then, of course, to this day, we still have children being apprehended in hospitals, at schools, by um, people with no Indigenous cultural understanding and, and really by government policy to continue this. And now we're going into, um, and, and for me, this is an issue because I talk about it with the National Inquiry Report, I talk about it just in general, where we knew that the children that were being apprehended were being abused, if not by their foster system, the uh, group homes, like it's just a horrible place to be. It's just intentional institution of these children. And then they, um, you know, exhibit 
problematic issues from it because you know they've lost their mom they've been traumatized sometimes these children have been raped in the system it's awful there's no accountability in any of it so then when children start going towards um drugs or alcohol people are like oh those damn dirty indians because they're fucking racist, as opposed to just learning that literally the apprehension policy is causing the trauma that's causing the addiction, not to mention the loss of identity, the loss of um, culture, and the loss of family. And then I end up doing a vigil for somebody who is lost in this ridiculous policy. And for people who can't comprehend that, like one, it's either willful, or two, um, you know, it's that I don't want to take responsibility for my government's actions, right? So that's why I talk about voting all the time, but people don't understand the correlation because they just don't even care. And that apathy um, transitions into genocide against our people in modern day terms. So I, I just, I have to say it in the hopes that somebody somewhere will hear it maybe a little differently today. And that's yeah. why I think Clearing the Plains 2.0 was such an apt title. Yeah, and, and there certainly are people hearing it. You know, we've there's 1,500 sets of eyes on that on that piece already. Uh, you know, from a Substack post. So there's there's a there's a lot of people taking an interest in this, uh, which is good to see. I think I think a lot of people need to see it. Um, and I hope that I hope more than anything that Indigenous communities uh, and and individuals can can get a hold of this and 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 hopefully put some meaning to, to the feelings they have around this, because I think right now, the, the only explanation that is given by our governments is, is quote unquote addiction and, and mental health, um, which individualizes a systemic problem. This is a drug poisoning crisis. This is about a toxic drug supply. That's why people are dying right now. That yes. Addiction didn't just start skyrocketing in 2014 mm-hmm. uh, at a moment that coincidentally also uh, happened at the same time as the fentanyl arriving in Alberta. You know, it was about drug supply contamination, and it continues to be about drug supply contamination. And we're seeing waves, wave after wave of this with benzodiazepines infecting the drug supply, and then uh, and now xylazine. And we're at a point now where carrying naloxone might not even be enough to reverse an overdose if somebody's knocked out from from a heavy benzo or or xylazine poisoning. So. Um, it's it's just important to understand that I think for for all communities that that we're not in a situation where if this is you know limited to like indigenous people who that old trope like can't handle their booze you know or whatever um, that that's been around since 1884 when when we you know brought in the second you know another another amendment amendment to the Indian Act to effectively uh, legislate prohibition in on on reserves uh, for alcohol. So it's kind of really Canada's first drug policy, uh, drug prohibition policy. Um, I wanted to just touch on one thing that you a common thread that you were pulling on there through through a lot of what you just said. And, uh, and it's it's the continuation. Um, There's this there's this unbroken uh, pattern, really, of of genocide through Canada's history. It, It started, like you said, in the early days of land occupation and then Canada trying to figure out how it was going to kind of legislate peacefully people into reserves and people uh, and, and corral them and, and uh, you know, supervise them, surveil them under those conditions and, and eventually incarcerate them for various reasons. Um, but, it, but it continued. It didn't stop when Indian residential schools were starting to fall out of fashion. Um, it was yeah, it was child apprehension. And, and when child apprehension got kind of flagged as well, not that that's decreased at all. We have more Indigenous kids in childcare now than we ever have before uh, To uh, at this moment after, we, after all we know. But um, we're always looking for different ways to sort of disrupt the communities. Um, so it is an unbroken pattern through our history. And, and the drug poisoning crisis are in action around it, are in action on regulating the drug supply and making it more um, manageable for people who maybe need to use drugs at this point in their lives for various reasons. Um, our inaction on that is, uh, is not different, really, in a lot of ways from, from the legislation of child apprehension and Indian residential schools, because we've already got the legislation of drug prohibition. So mm-hmm. through drug prohibition, we have legislated Indigenous genocide. Yeah, 100%. I'm really glad you brought up the uh, kind of the surveillance and incarceration, because it started with putting us on reserves and having an Indian agent determine every move we make 
Same with the priests and nuns at these uh, Christian-run Indian residential schools. Foster care, um, social workers policing us and police for that matter, and police back in Indian residential school and putting us on reserves. And then now today, we just go straight into the prison system. So they, we've never stopped incarcerating Indigenous people in some way, some capacity, some shape or form. And I think that's really important because I talk about the constant surveillance of us, but I don't think settlers still get it. And that, like, obviously, the uh, very conservative folks will never get it because they think they're the most oppressed demographic. And, uh, you know, the, the, a pro, like, you, the progressives that claim to care about this issue still won't do anti-racism training, still won't do uh, Indigenous education. So I find a lot of progressives coming with a lot of white savior syndrome. But when I met you, I didn't, I didn't feel that from you. I felt like you're just like in solidarity and arms and meeting people where they're at, which is more of a trauma-informed way of dealing with it. And I have seen many of the folks in harm reduction still not get what what trauma being trauma informed is and despite the fact like even with settlers we're talking about you know a disproportionate amount of lgbtq2 plus that have been rejected from their homes because of their stupid christian parents you know like it, it it's a constant uh trauma and and i mean in that case it's usually uh that that gender diversity but we have that in our communities too because of the brainwashing by christian families so for some of our uh, two-spirit, you know, they have been rejected by their families as well, on top of all the intergenerational trauma. So, and then they're not welcome into the um, predominantly white settler LGBTQ uh, organizations that claim to understand too, but, you know, they're not, again, won't do the anti-racism training, won't do Indigenous education, so they don't sound so, uh, you know, racist when we walk in those circles. Yeah. 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 Um, I th thank you for that. I, I think that um, I think that the reason that I'm able to take the stance that I can with with a lot of this is is that I, I can stand outside of the institutions a little bit, um, a little bit more than some people who are, are absorbed by them. I, I think our institutions, including harm reduction now, um, do a really good job of, of silencing people. Uh, I think that when, you know, if, if we look at this from a really top level of like looking down from the government, you know, the government has this long unbroken history of, of Indigenous genocide. Okay, we can all agree on that. that that's obvious by now, except, you know, to Daniel Smith and other residential school deniers. But um, like for most of us, that should be really obvious. So if, yeah. if you're the government, like a lot of your mechanisms are geared towards uh, maintaining that pattern, right? because land occupation is critical for industrial exploitation and, and extractive capitalism. So we, we, need, we need to maintain that land occupation. The idea of land back is, is so antithetical to, to the project of Canada. Um, and, and so our institutions that are funded by government are inherently going to be um, co-opting the sorts of measures that I think that really take root in, in radical thinking. Um, you know, harm reduction was developed in response originally in response to uh, to HIV AIDS, right? By by some very feisty activists in in the 1980s, uh, you know, um, ACT UP and and so on, and, and their counterparts across North America, and and these people were were not afraid of anything because they didn't have anything to lose. Or, yeah, or so. they were already losing so much. Yeah, and and I think that that exists today within a lot of um, sort of more radical uh, harm reduction activism. You're seeing you're seeing people handing out heroin, you know, uh, and, and fentanyl and, and all that stuff to people uh, who, after testing it and, and knowing that it's safe for those people who are going to take it anyway, that that's a radical act. That's something that can land you in jail for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, setting up illegal overdose prevention sites, uh, setting up uh, like these, these are, um, you know, doing drug testing uh, under the radar. Th those sorts of things um, are community protection acts that uh, don't, that, that really fly in the face, I think, of the institutionalization that um, that a lot of harm reduction measures have now uh, been sort of co-opted by. So 
Yeah. It's uh, it's something that I think a lot of us should should hold on to as long as we can, um, and, and keep a foot outside of outside of the institutions as much as you can, um, if if it's if it's available to you, and and if it's not, then you know you're working within a system. Don't be absorbed by that system. You know, uh, do your best to resist that because it's it's working to it's working to silence you ultimately. So I think that's um, that's something I've definitely observed. Yeah, I think that's why we don't see Indigenous voices at that table on a regular basis. We yeah. only see, you know, spokespeople who happen to be settlers. And, uh, you know, I, I hope over time that we can somehow mitigate this in a better way. But um, obviously, this election is incredibly important. And even then, you know, last night was the leaders debate, and we didn't really hear any conversation on real social issues, actually. Um, you know, and it, again, you know, I was saying uh, before we recorded that, you know, if you're uh, a pro NDP or if you're a pro UCP on Twitter, you want Right. So that makes it really hard because it's like then, you know, the issue's lost 100 mm -hmm. percent. Mm -hmm. And that sucks because it was just more of a, you know, throw in throwing bombs at each other. Who, who has the best mic drop? Who has the best talking point? How is this going to market into our emails, our donation boxes, blah, 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 blah. And that that was depressing. So um, I, I did vote, though. Um, I see vote in, in our last episode with Simon Jamal. I talked about voting as harm reduction. I uh, was lucky enough to have one speaker kind of say the same thing and uh, talk about Indigenous voting. So if you are Indigenous, I, I pray, I hope that you go to advanced polls. Um, I already did a special ballot because this is harm reduction, right? And having an Indian residential school denier as our premier is not going to help us get through any of this. So to me, that's like the first thing. And we have lots of solutions. And um, oh, and I should also, I wanted to bring up, I want to talk about Terrell and uh, Will, who were contributors to this paper as well, because uh, I watched that video that Will had done that's uh, embedded. And it's such a great video to show how this is ripping apart our communities. Um, when I open my Facebook every single day, I have a broken heart emotion or an, a broken heart and, uh, and flowers. And I just give that over and over and over and over because of how um, often people are dying in, in our communities right now. And, and the fact that I settlers can't see that, like I can't understand it. Yeah, I think it's been very effectively uh, removed from the line of sight of a lot of settler communities. And uh, I think if if the average person in Alberta could see what's going on um, in, in most Indigenous communities in this province, uh, it would give them pause around how we're addressing drug toxicity in particular, but but all of these other mechanisms, you know, um, I wanted to bring up the CEDAR project and uh, and the sort of academic work now that's being done led by Indigenous folks. This is in BC, but but it should be really widespread. Yeah. Uh, and the findings, I think, are probably universal, at least across Western Canada, with, with these sort of shared histories of, of really high concentrations of, of Indian residential schools and, uh, uh, and the 60s scoop and everything. Um, uh, the Cedar Project is really is is a really cool initiative. It's been it's been going for some time now, a couple couple decades, I think. And um, some of the studies they put out, they really started with a cohort, you know, two cohorts of young people in Prince George and in Vancouver, uh, young Indigenous folks, and and followed them through their experiences over over long periods and looked at all asked all kinds of questions about these these young folks, um, you know, for for women, like uh, what's the rate of of suicide uh attempts after you know being separated from their kids for example uh what, what's the rate of hiv or hep c acquisition among uh, urban indigenous drug users uh how often are these people dying and and from what causes just really kind of simple questions that that trace their way back to the traumas uh the aces the uh um the adverse childhood experiences the um uh, and and all these uh you know, ongoing systemic inequities that exist, healthcare access and 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 so on, mm -hmm. um, that that exist for these people, all the barriers that they encounter in their day to day lives that that us uh, as settlers just don't. And yeah, I think um, one really uh, kind of potent example of uh, of the way that you know settler communities don't really necessarily see even even when we're experiencing trauma from a drug poisoning loss. Um, 
the, um, the blood the blood tribe in 2021 put out uh, an emergency notice um, that that in a single year um, they had lost 92 people from from drug poisoning or drug poisoning related incidents. Um, I think they counted a few suicides in, within this, um, but 92 people in a, in a population of what 10,000 like yeah. uh, in one year, you know. So so there. Uh, that that's a significant number. That's almost a hundred people out of ten thousand, yeah. um, which is uh, which is like one percent of almost one percent of the population. Uh, so so the Gaina are are really sounding the alarm and have been for quite some time. It's it, it always it always seems like uh, when something's hitting Alberta, when a new drug is hitting Alberta, it works its way through uh, through the Gaina Nation first. Yeah. And, uh, and we saw that with fentanyl and, and we saw that we're seeing that with xylazine, you know, there was this sort of ripple down there, um, weeks or months before we saw it show up here in Calgary with, with xylazine. So mm -hmm. I think we, we would really serve ourselves well, um, to, to listen more carefully to these communities because they're seeing things first in a lot of cases, but, but they're seeing things biggest. And, and if we just, uh, kept our ears to the ground a little bit more, and and listen to these folks when they're sounding the alarms uh we, we could probably you know even just from a pragmatic point of like we could save ourselves some grief in the cities in the big cities you know yes uh then you know but but again you come back to the idea that maybe this is all kind of by design that that our inaction is by design then yes. uh then it then it all kind of makes sense why why we're not doing that so yeah and yeah. horrifying i hope it's horrifying to people to realize yeah. that this is so intentional. So uh, we should probably give a shout out to Dr. Esther Tail Feathers for the amazing work she does down south. And of course, I think, like you said, she's a siren for Alberta and, uh, you know, really tells us the truth. And I, I, I really felt uh, bad in the 2019 election when she was going to run for the NDP, but she just, because of the drug poisoning issue that was happening she just felt like if I leave this is not going to help my community so she didn't so like uh for folks who listen to me talk endlessly about you know indigenous women in politics like imagine that's your reasoning I know a lot of uh, settler politicians who, who don't contribute to their community the way she does and would never have to make that choice and I I uh, yeah yeah couldn't run for politics because she was too busy responding to overdoses in parking lots, you know? Yes. Um, she, uh, can you imagine a province led by somebody like her? I, I, that's a world, that's a world that I think we should all want to live in. Um, 100%. I, yeah, I, I, that's, that's a huge loss that, 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 that happened. And, uh, and you're right though, we, we should be, uh, we should be paying a lot more attention um, and, and putting, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully the NDP gets into power here. I really do hope that we we need the UCP out first of all, um, yeah. first group of business. But but I do sense that the NDP <clears throat> would hopefully put um, people like that in in a bigger spotlight and and in leadership positions that they can really guide the solutions to this crisis because yeah. she does really understand the whole context of it. Yeah, I did hear Rachel last night say that, um, yeah, it's one thing to talk about these so-called beds that nobody has seen, but it's another to give them a house after they're done. And I yeah. thought that was really important because we don't have the infrastructure to really help people in their sobriety, assuming we can even get them there. Right. Yeah. So and, and then with Daniel Smith's uh, colonial, uh, you know, policing approach, it will just shove people in there. Like, and that is so hypocritical. Like, I can't understand how the people who would happily, um, you know, be found in violations of ethics um, for for siding with people literally planning to kill RCMP for so-called freedoms, they, they'll do that. They'll side with that, but be like, no, throw those natives in jails. And that's why they want to do it, because um, truthfully, even so-called progressives will be like, oh, my God, I'm so afraid to be on the sea train now. And they won't take public transit, but they don't see their role in contributing to all of this. Right. So um, calling the police is such a, you know, still a standard go to here. And it sucks. Yeah. And there's something else there, too, um, that actually I wanted to come back to you from something earlier that you said around this sort of our incarceration patterns. Um, right now, we're moving into a, a place where we're, we're going to be, if the UCP win, we're going to be implementing mandatory 
addiction treatment um, for for largely unhoused people who don't need treatment. They need a house. They need yes. they need a safe supply of drugs. They need food security. Uh, they need ways to rebuild community con- connection. You know, and uh, and and do so safely. And um, this kind of mandatory treatment, what they're calling the, the Compassionate Intervention Act, it's now been made official. It was uh, it was kind of egg on their face at first when Alana Smith first uh, dug this up from a from an FOI submission, and and she got all this stack of paperwork back saying, uh, yeah, we're we're planning to to force people into abstinence when we round them up on the streets, effectively. Um, she put that out in the Globe and Mail. Uh, it ran like wildfire across across the country really people were looking at this and saying well this is bad like we already do this with kids you know through uh um we already do this with mental health act as well um but but what they're talking about is at a whole other level you know moving this into into the adult realm and um uh really with no limits on it with no uh, no oversight and putting it in the hands of police Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, not healthcare pra- practitioners, which, which again, is not ideal in a lot of circumstances either, but, uh, I uh, certainly don't want cops going around and deciding who, uh, is and isn't fit for, uh, addiction treatment. That's a, that's a, that's a decision that, uh, people should be making with healthcare providers on a voluntary basis. You know, and um, I think it's really important to bring up two books. Yeah. So I have this, um, an act of genocide by uh, Karen Stote, but for you settlers, uh, there's another one called A Special Hell, and it's um, institutional life in um, Alberta's eugenics years. And uh, ultimately, to me, this is what we're still perpetuating. You know, Mm. we're going to decide who's crazy, we're going to force them into an institution, and we're going to leave them there, and we're going to, you know, do all sorts of experiments on them, and that's totally fine, and everybody's okay with it, because out of sight, out of mind. And um, I really wish Albertans would understand the gravity of that. Yeah. Another uh, another piece of of this, that coming back to what you said with Will and his, uh, and his kind of uh, presentation that he gave. Um, so this is Will Will Cardinal. Um, he's he's up in Edmonton, and uh, and he's been he's been doing kind of street outreach uh, work for for a good decade now. Um, and and I think this comes back to to the institutionalization as well. Is that I, I think something that I've learned from Will is um, is that unhoused first of all, like unhoused people in Edmonton often don't think of themselves as such. Like some of them are just like. We're indigenous. We live on the land. We're not unhoused. We, yeah. You know that doesn't really mean anything to us. Others are are like, yeah, we we want safety. We want housing. We want we want we want the full uh, access to to the human rights that other people have in this in this province. And I'm gonna just uh, pop in real quick yeah. and say, especially women and mo- and mothers. Yeah, like the, they're the ones who are dying because you know, children and mothers die when they don't have proper housing and how anyone in this country can possibly justify otherwise to me. Well, you'll never be able to do that unless you're just anti-human rights. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to actually, I want to come back to something there too, as well. Let's, uh, let's, let's bookmark that. Um, sure. (laughs) Something. So, so what Will tells you is, uh, is like, you know, he's, he's visibly indigenous guy, uh, walking around, um, Chinatown and and other parts of Edmonton, like really within that that region of Chinatown, kind of north northeast of uh, of downtown, and and he says he never feels safe anywhere in Edmonton, uh, never feels safer than he does there, uh, and this is a neighborhood that that people always flag as the 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 grimy kind of rough edge neighborhood that you, that you don't want to visit at night kind of thing. But but Will, 10 years of street outreach down there, he knows the community, the community knows him, he's trusted, they trust, you know, all that. Um, he, he's he's safe there, you know, and, uh, and yet, I mean, in a way it, 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 that neighborhood itself kind of represents its own form of institutionalization. Um, we look at like the hockey arena that went in, Mm -hmm. um, that, that pushed people that physically pushed people out of a space they were occupying, um, and, and, and move them into a, a more increasingly constrained, confined, uh, almost institution of, of houselessness in, in Boyle Macaulay. Uh, people scattered to some different parts, you know, up to Alberta Ave and so on and, and into downtown and whatever, but, but that was their area, you know, and, and now that land is again, being kind of occupied, resettled uh, as an academic group put it recently. Sure. Um, it's been, been resettled by Daryl Cates. Um, and, 
And so uh, I think that the institutionalization of people goes beyond um, incarceration and, and mandatory treatment and, and these other carceral methods, like the, carcer the carceral methods really extend to the way that we treat land in our cities and towns yeah. and push people and box them into spaces. Downtown east side of Vancouver, for example, yeah. if you're from downtown east side, you're an unhoused person down there and you set foot in Kitsilano, uh, the air raid siren goes off, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that's, that that's I think are really um, that's something I've learned from Will uh, in in a lot of different ways and different encounters I've had with him. Well, I can tell you um, when they were developing around Stampede and that whole area originally, the Victoria Park um, had a lot of folks that was actually considered uh, as well as Inglewood. Then they did a whole bunch of gentrification to both Inglewood and Victoria Park, and folks were really pushed to Forest Lawn and. Um, you know, the BRZ worked really hard to, like, they're pretty pro-police, bottom line, right? Um, pro-business, pro-police. Yeah. So uh, our folks are always kind of trying to hide. And of course, what happens because of that? We have a whole bunch of Indigenous sex workers that have been abused by this fellow just outside of town, which we all knew this, this was happening. Um, but nobody would listen. Nobody cared. Nobody would, you know, do the work. To, to find out more, but at least now it's being said. Um, so that gentrification of areas has always caused more displacement and then bring in the pandemic and you know none of the white collared folks are getting on the sea trains to go downtown. Obviously mm. it made sense for our folks to move to these places, but also as you know, for a harm reduction reason that there was a higher chance that if they did overdose that there would be somebody who would come by as opposed to hiding in, in a corner of a community that they might not be as harassed by police with. Yeah, that uh, that idea of um, of kind of being scuttled off into like dark corners of the cities, into back alleys, yeah. um, and then and then kind of hope hoping to hoping to reclaim some space for yourself, some safe space, um, maybe underneath a uh, like a video camera, a CCTV that that somebody is monitoring from Calgary Transit, uh, so that if you do overdose and you go Im immobile for for half an hour that somebody's going to show up and, and save your life. Um, that's very sensible. Mm -hmm. And, and not only that, but communities move together. It's not like unhoused people don't have community and community connection. They are communities, they exist in community and, um, and, you know, they're going to congregate together in places where they feel safe. So, um, we need to, we need to open our hearts a little bit to that. I think, um, you know, even, even if it, take some getting used to. I think that we need to treat our public spaces as public spaces and uh, and stop with this idea that that only kind of settlers with the ability to pay for things um, belong belong in them. Um, on that on that front as well, kind of like tying back to the the issue of women feeling safe and 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 like and, and seeking housing and stuff, there was this recent uh, actually it was a Vancouver Sun article, a uh, really powerful piece that uh, that talked about um, how uh, Indigenous women in BC are 11 times more likely to die of drug poisoning uh, than non-Indigenous women. And uh, one of the reasons they cited for that was that Indigenous women often don't feel safe going into overdose prevention sites um, because these are, they're, they're open for everybody. Uh, and so if you're somebody who, who doesn't feel safe around certain men or, um, yeah, for, for various reasons, you need to have your own space that that is that excludes the people that you feel unsafe around um then then you just won't use them and uh and as a result uh th they're just not accessing the services at the same level that other people are and uh and it's causing a a, a massive increase disproportionate increase in death rate that, that's already very high among indigenous people uh but particularly now for women and uh this all you know it, it ties back to some of the cedar project work it ties back to um, to the family separation and impacts on families and, and separating mothers from their children. Um, and, uh, and I think it really does encompass a lot of what we talked about in our piece um, where we, we try to connect these dots together. Wonderful. Any other lasting thoughts that you wanna leave? Yeah, I think uh, I think in Alberta we we need to start getting a little angrier about this kind of stuff. I think we need to funnel that anger into um, into action, and and if that means 
if that means a little civil disobedience here and there, then so be it. I, I just encourage people to um, to step outside their comfort zone, um, show up for for events for sure, film the police, um, make sure that you're looking out for for others, and uh, and and show solidarity wherever you can. But if you catch wind of uh, you know something something going on uh, on the civil disobedience front, like do what you can to support it. Um, we need more of that sort of thing going on right now because uh, our institutions are not designed to to heal these these wounds and injuries um, and harms. These our institutions are designed to carry forward the the settler colonial mentality and um, and the land occupation mindset that that we all were brought up in. So let's try and um, do our best to sort of decolonize that and and find ways to express a little more solidarity with with indigenous folks. Wow. Just for the record, I think you're doing amazing work and uh, you're one of the folks that have always given me a donation here and there. So I just, I can't thank you enough for the work you do. I, I do believe, and I wish we had a way to even study how many lives are being saved. You know, I, I do by the work you do, by the work, um, even our our racist uh, other street, street walkers um, who, who try to help with this. You know, it, it's hard. This is hard, hard work. The burnout's ridiculous. And I know you've been putting in a good fight for a long time and especially at the policy level. So to me, I just wanna say thank you from the bottom of our heart um, because Tyrell, Will, Cardinal, um, you know, the fact that you felt comfortable doing outreach to us with all of that, I think really speaks of what, you know, your understanding of reconciliation, treaty partnership, harm reduction, and how it all works together and how that's actual community. So, and I know our community, like we, we are all on the C-Train platforms downtown where, you know, going to vigils together regularly. And even once you get housed, you still see yourself as part of the community that's houseless. So, um, and I see that all the time from folks who did, who finally do get um, housing to some degree, um, you know, so I just want to say thank you. I want to support your work as you, you continue doing what you're doing and um, and I hope that folks all follow you both on Twitter and and through your organization can you say it one more time so that they can go to the and get signed up on your email yeah so um the the best way to find the piece that you and and Terrell Tail, Tail Feathers and Will Cardinal um wrote together with me was uh is at um, drugdatadecoded.ca drugdatadecoded.ca and that um that that's that's kind of a longer piece it's, it's really worth a look um it's uh yeah. it, it carries a lot of what i've learned from from the three of you and, and many others um over over, over recent years uh, I'm, I'm really glad we put it together and it's hopefully starts more conversations i i, I want this to be a big focus so me so too. yeah um, that's uh that's that's where i leave it there you can find me on uh, on twitter at els thompson no p all right. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for being on my show again. And know you are welcome back anytime, depending on what comes up next for all of us. So um, for folks who are part of my book club, our next book is June 12th, Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. And while it is fiction, it's a it's a pretty real portrayal of what it's like after Indian residential school and dealing with complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, and addiction and all sorts of issues that come along with all of the traumas that come with Indian residential school and settler Canadians being okay with these type of policies. Uh, July, we're finishing up the MMIW report. August, our Voice of Fire by Brandy Morin. Uh, and then we're going to do in September the Pathways to Justice from the Government of Alberta, 113 Pathways to Justice Recommendations by Alberta's Joint uh, Working Group on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. And I pray that whoever your MLA is, that you're asking them about this report. Um, Cree lawyer Harold Johnston's book of Peace and Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice is in October. And in November, a report to guide the implementation of a national action plan on violence against women and gendered violence. And then in December, Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, edited by Joyce Green. Those are our books coming up. Um, they are open to the public. Anyone can join. It's just a Zoom link. And, um, and we try to make it a safe space. So, and if you've you are one of my subscribers. You probably have heard some of our book clubs that we've had. Um, if you are a settler wanting to do more, there's the Reconciliation
Reconciliation Action Group locally and nationally. There should be community or committees everywhere, whether your workplace, whether your nonprofits, whether your church, there should be. And if there isn't, please create one and reach out to us. We'll help guide you if you're struggling, but make sure it's Indigenous led, just like the way Ewan did such a great job in making this uh, Clearing the Plains 2.0 indigenous led for the most part um i think these things matter we have to work together and i hope you're inspired by him on things that you can do as a settler to you know, really work on our treaty partnership you know i'm proud that this podcast has given us solutions included cultural safety training and cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for indigenous people of color those with disabilities and 2slgbtq plus to speak I want to say thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca for having this wonderful piece on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why should I care about it. Their work and those cultural action tools are available, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. I talk a lot about the three levels of racism. I wake up every day by just simply existing. You have your structural, you have your individual, and then there's the internalized and lateral violence that we see. And uh, Donna Bevins of racialequitytools.org has a wonderful um, piece on was, what is internalized racism, but has tons of more resource files and they're always looking for donations. So please consider uh, some donations there too. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Community. Uh, so that's AFSC.org. Um, if you follow me at all, I've been trying to promote the new anti-racism organizational lead for the city of Calgary as a good starting point on the journey be to become an anti-racism leader. These are the types of things all the nonprofits can take from. You can go to AROC at CommunityWise. There's already a structural change organizational thing. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. This is available for everybody. Um, Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings just so it's regularly disregarded, no more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they um, are cutting violence prevention programs, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, not giving safe supply, <laughs> lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly ne negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, violence prevention, now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice, so all you blue voters should be holding your blue MLAs to account for it. Um, please vote in the upcoming election. Every vote matters. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational and health institutions, justice, everything, with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and policies. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they have zero business running. It should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies because there's multiple of them out there. Stephanie Harp and I did an emergency podcast in December and hoping we could reach our allies to consider to do more on the crisis we are facing. Uh, demand for urgent action to protect the lives of Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people experience homelessness was issued by home, womenshomelessness.ca. You can also download uh, the Aboriginal Alert app, as well as the Missing Children Society of Canada. They have an app as well. Obviously, Ian and I are just stalking solely on the issue of drug poisoning that's happening. Uh, there are a few resources available. So for folks who are using, please don't use alone. If you are losing, using alone, just like um, in domestic violence, intimate partner violence, you make a safety plan, try to make a safety plan for how you're going to handle 
um, the substances that, that you might be ingesting. Usually by being with somebody, you have somebody who is able to help you in case you do overdose. There is a national overdose response service at 888-688-NORS for support. And there's a Brave Indoors app. Do you want to pipe in here at all and talk about how ineffective they are? Because <laughs> I would love that. Well, uh, we just don't have data. <laughs> um, NORS is good. I know people that use NORS. Um, doors, we didn't really need in the first place, it seems like, because other apps that do the same thing already existed. But it does funnel data into the Alberta government's hands, which right now is probably not the best thing for your health. So um, I would say uh, stick with, yeah, Brave is good. Um, uh, what's the other one? Lifeguard. Um, and, and for the phone line, it's it's uh, NORS for sure. So uh, I, I think those are all all good services. They're not going to end the drug poisoning crisis, but but they can do a little bit to help in there. So and maybe in time, like you were saying, if we get a different government, maybe that data will matter. We'll see. So yeah. thank you, thank you for that. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today, and your First Nation, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can go to their website, hopeforwellness.ca, and they have a little text option if that's more convenient. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. And if you are non-Indigenous, you can call the Distress Center lines, usually a functioning 211 or 833-456-4566, or you can actually text at 45645. And if you prefer, crisisservicecanada.ca for more information. Uh, Indian Residential School Survivors and Family Hotline is 866-925-4419. Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868. I used that as a teenager. Um, Native Youth Christ Hotline, 1-877-209-1266. The following are two SLGBTQ2 plus crisis supports. They are available in most areas across Canada. This will, just one sec, I am uh, have something going on here. Sorry, my I'm just gonna repeat that part. My uh, brother was yelling at the dog here, so. <laughs> Uh, Native Youth Crisis Hotline 877-209-1266. The following are two SLGBTQ2 plus crisis supports that are available in most areas across Canada. Uh, these will give you nationwide options on who you can call, websites you can visit, videos you can watch if you need to talk to or are in crisis yourself. So you can go to lifevoice.ca. They have tons of crisis supports specifically for two SLGBTQ the Trans Lifeline 877-330-6366, and the Trevor Project for Youth 866-844-7386. And I'll just say we just had the uh, International Day Against uh, Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. And I just want to remind anyone who is under that umbrella that you matter and that we appreciate you. We love you. It will get better. And I'm sorry that people are still standing by and doing nothing on this issue. Um, you know, my husband and I regularly listen to what is happening in Germany and Austria, and they have really strong hate crimes there. And I hope one day people here will start seeing the need to have more enforceable hate crimes because we need them here. Um, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. This is why I started the podcast, just to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs by people who know nothing about Indigenous, colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigil, and our rights. I and many others share info on microaggressions. It is simply unacceptable to say them anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. People like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, folks who survive off the status quo, and then others who are so in their trauma, they deplete the personal resources and stop people from doing work. Um, internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous people, folks with uh, disabilities, QT, BIPOC, and more. Masicho to my ancestors, to my granny now in heaven, my mom, what strength looks like through your example. 
I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt and my stepmom for teaching me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her, I'm a second generation. Uh, thank you to my husband, Darcy, who, you know, he's produced and edited the show, but he's my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, and been my support down the red road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, Thunderpipe Necklace Woman, we are blessed to learn from you daily. We are so honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. And yeah, it'd be great to get some donations. What can I say? I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or yet be in my dish. Thank you so much, folks, for listening. And thank you for being my guest yet again.